Hi, travelers. This is Space Mountain Mission Control. Please bear with us. Your ship is being prepped for launch and should be ready to go soon. You're watching the UFO Network. Stay tuned for My Favorite Earthling. Hello, it's Crazy Larry here for Crazy Larry's used spaceship and satellites. Hey, are you in the market for a used spaceship? I've got them all. Solar salutations, fashion fanatics. I'm Ray Cathode on fashion. The hot news at the Mars shows is color. Just look at these fabulous flight suits and plush pastels. It's like a bouquet in orbit. And their high visibility comes in handy when you find yourself drifting away from the mothership. W Radio. Your information station. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 353 for the week of March 9th, 2014. I am here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, my videos, blog, live broadcasts, special events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, saving money guide to Walt Disney World, audio tours, and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. This week's show is sponsored by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download by visiting audibletrial.com slash WDWradio. There's more than 100,000 titles to choose from, including many Disney books like How to Be Like Walt, Capturing the Disney Magic Every Day of Your Life. There's lots of other books you can check out as well. Again, you can sign up for free, cancel anytime over at audibletrial.com slash WDWradio. This week, we're going to take a journey through time and space as we do a DSI Disney scene investigation of a classic Walt Disney World e-ticket attraction, Space Mountain. We'll look at its very early history, tracing back to Walt himself, its construction, details, backstory, and changes over the years. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package then stay tuned for updates and announcements, including information about our next Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World and On the Road event coming very soon. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Hi, this is Lou Mangiello, and for nearly 10 years, I've shared my passion for all things Walt Disney World in an effort to bring you some Disney magic wherever you are in a variety of ways. And I started out by writing the books I wanted to read, my first two Walt Disney World trivia books, and I promise a third one is on the way. And then I went on to start writing articles and podcasting and doing videos, live broadcasts, live special events and meetups. I published a magazine, and I even continue to take the show literally on the road to meet and get to know as many of you as possible. And for the past decade, there's been one question, one problem, one request for help that I get more than anything else. And I think that it's one that's usually in the mind of every person planning a Walt Disney World vacation. And so the idea for something I called 102 was born. Because bringing the family to Walt Disney World is something that so many people dream about and plan for and save toward. And the one question that I continue to get is always something like, I hear that a trip to Walt Disney World could be so expensive, how do I save money at Walt Disney World? Well, for the past year, I've been working on trying to help solve that problem so that anybody and everybody can have a truly magical vacation. But I don't just have one answer, I have 102. So I'm excited to announce my latest project, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World. It's a 197-page book that can be instantly downloaded to your computer, iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Nook, any reader, and it's also coming to the Kindle and iBook store as well, too. In this comprehensive, detailed guide, I give you 102 different ways that you can have the most incredible Disney vacation without breaking the bank. And I promise you that you can have the Disney vacation you envision for your family at a rate that's a lot more affordable than you might have expected. In fact, 
I even guarantee it. I'm so certain this guy's going to help you save money that I will give you a personal money-back guarantee. If you are unable to save at least the cost of the guide after reading the book, I will gladly give you the purchase price back. The book includes not just easy-to-follow practical tips, tools, and advice, but links to relevant websites and podcasts and videos, as well as anecdotes, trivia, and beautiful images throughout. So whether you're planning your first Walt Disney World vacation or have been there dozens of times, you're guaranteed to have a more budget-friendly experience whether you're going solo, with a friend, or bringing the entire family. Now, included in this book are money-saving strategies for everything from saving money before you go to staying at a Walt Disney World Resort hotel, saving on dining, souvenirs, experiences, and so much more. And in addition to the tips, I also have 40 things you can experience, enjoy, do, eat, and collect for free. The book is a perfect investment for those who are thinking about giving their family the vacation of a lifetime. It is the authoritative guide to a budget family vacation. It's a one-stop handbook for practical information, easy to read, active, clickable links throughout, as well as step-by-step how-tos. It covers every part of the vacation, even before you start planning. And because it's an ebook, you can take it with you wherever you go, including to the parks. You can learn more, see sample pages, and instantly download 102 ways to save money for and at Walt Disney World by visiting the website over at Disney102.com. And if you like the book, all I ask is that you please help spread the word, tell your friends, post a link to Disney102.com on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram. And if you're a blogger or a podcaster, want to review copy, let me know. Email me at lou at wdwradio.com and I'll send you right away. Thank you so very much for your time and your attention. I hope you enjoy my latest project, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World. So do you remember the A through E ticket books in Walt Disney World where the ticket cost increased from A through E depending on the thrill or the wow factor of an attraction? And if so, when you thought of an E ticket in the Magic Kingdom, especially back in the, in the mid to late 70s, chances are one of the first ones that came to mind was probably not the Hall of Presidents, although it actually was an E ticket, believe it or not, but Space Mountain. The blue and white mountain and the spires that sort of dominate that landscape of Tomorrowland really acts as that visual beacon, or a weenie as Walt called it, towards the excited guests who lines up at rope drop and makes the race to space. And today, it's considered one of the classics, but I think still retains that e-ticket flair and thrill quotient, and with some recent reimagineering, I think that holds true even more. So this week... We're going to board the Wayback Machine and the Today Machine and take a very close look at an attraction whose history goes farther back in time than you might think. And oftentimes, when I go way back in Walt Disney World, I like to bring along a friend. And this week, it's once again somebody who still thinks that RCA does lead the way. He is Ryan P. Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. Welcome back, my friend. Glad to be here. And, you know, we've been talking about Space Mountain and talking about talking about Space Mountain for a, a <laughs> long time. And, and, you know, I think this really sort of embodies that quintessential e-ticket attraction, right? When we talk about things like e-ticket rides, for those that remember, you think of Pirates and Jungle Cruise and the Mansion and the Tiki Room and, the, you know, Small World. Yes, you know, Small World and Hall of Presence. These were sort of e-ticket attractions. But I, I think Space Mountain really kind of embodied what that ticket was supposed to represent, right? It's fun, it's thrilling, edge of your seat, white knuckle, heart pounding, let's ride it again, dad kind of attraction. Absolutely. It's that thing of the, you see it first thing coming, even when you're coming across Seven Seas Lagoon, it's, it stands out there by on its own. You, everyone's running to get there in the morning because you know it's just, that is the way to start that day. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we start to sort of look at the attraction, we're going to really look back at its history. And 
you know, in 2014, it still is one that people come out, especially first timers, with this huge grin on their face and they want to get back on it. You know, at the time, some of what they were planning to include in there and the way they were going to design it and build it were sort of radical ideas, right? And, it, and when it opened in Tomorrowland, it was kind of timely, not just because Tomorrowland was relatively barren when it first opened. You know, remember, <laughs> Tomorrowland opened in 71 with two attractions the Skyway. And the Speedway, not the most futuristic of things in the world, <laughs> you know, but it was about the space race and about this very futuristic kind of design and story that they were going to put in there. Absolutely. I mean, you, you've just had, you know, everyone go actually to the moon. The space race is so present in everyone's mind. You know, the astronauts are national heroes. They're on, you're on a na first name basis with them at this point. You know, what better way than to put yourself into that rocket and blast off? Yeah, because when Flight to the Moon opened, everybody's like, eh, been there, done that. Like, we've been to the, to the moon already. <laughs> you know, it was obviously still very new, but that was sort of the the, the joke was that, well, we, we've been to the moon already, and that's why it ended up obviously becoming Mission to Mars. But, you know, the, the sense, you know, look at that attraction itself, that sense of we wanted to fly, right? We wanted to go into space. That's what Space Mountain was going to deliver in a very different type of roller coaster attraction. Definitely, and you you, know, you get the whole experience of these rockets. You can hear the screaming, whether you're on the people mover or you're coming in through the queue, but you have that, the queue, which is almost that gantry-like experience of you're that astronaut. You're getting ready to take this experience to the next level. So let's go back. Let's go even farther back than 1975 when it opened, because I said in the intro that the concept for what would eventually become Space Mountain goes farther back than that. You know, it really does go back to Walt Disney. You know, this was his kind of idea and it took, you know, over a decade to find the technology and the location and the sponsor and everything else that it's going to, to, to be. But it really came from an idea that Walt Disney had. Definitely. He had seen the success of a roller coaster in the park with the Matterhorn bobsleds at Disneyland and thought, where can we go with this next? What's the next step? And you know, then you have all this work being done for a spaceport or a space voyage being go done into Disneyland. Yeah, I mean, his is sort of the, the quote that's attributed to Walt Disney was, look, we have a Matterhorn mountain. Why can't we have a space mountain? And so he assigns the project to John Hench. He says, look, I want... And a, a roller, I want the Matterhorn in the dark. I want to control the lighting. I want to control what people see or don't see. I want them to feel like they are in space, to have it be, you know, full of surprises, time music uh, according to what's going on and where they're doing it. And, and like a lot of Walt Disney's idea, he was uh, unfortunately a, a victim of technology that had not caught up to his concepts, right? This is something that they wanted to, you know, they were working on very, very early on. They were trying to do it for Disneyland back in seven, in 1971, and it, it doesn't open up in Walt Disney World until later. And guys like Bill Watkins, who uh, was an engineer and imaginer who worked on a lot of rides, started working on uh, what was going to be the, the track here. But it went through a lot of different designs and, and different machinations machinations before it got to what was going to be this two-track model that was going to be in Walt Disney World. You know, Dick Irvine would look at it and says, all right, well, we want it to be more of a pyramid. We want to do this. We want to do a lot of different things. And that's why it took, that's one of the reasons why it took so many years to get Walt's idea from concept to paper to, you know, CAD drawing to reality. Definitely. You have people like John Hinch and Herb Ryman and George McGinnis working on stuff like this, where it was going to have it was going to have more than just the one you know set of spires. It was going to have different spires and potentially up to four tracks running in and out of the building and controlling that environment and seeing all the rockets just crisscrossing past, whether they were as close to you as, as you thought or not. And then you have Walt pass away. The focus of the company in and Roy becomes Walt Disney World, and it's like, okay, let's shelve this and make this part of the phase two of the Magic Kingdom and Disney World when we get there. And one of the people who principally worked on Space Mountain was a, a Disney legend or Imagineer, George McGinnis. And I want to invite you, the listener, to go back, way back in WDW radio history, back to show number 27, where I had a chance to sit down and speak to George McGinnis one-on-one -on -one. The interview is probably more than an hour. I could have talked to the guy forever, but his work on Space Mountain and the stories that he tells about Roger Brogy and, and John Hench and, and the other people who sort of helped make 
what George McGinnis wanted to put in there and what they, they wanted to put in there a reality, right? They talked about having this, the pre-show and the post-show and the belt going in and the moving belt going out and the in, the load area and a lot of things and how sort of Bill Watkins had to lay sort of the track around the show concept that George McGinnis came up because they did not want it to be simply a roller coaster as it was. It was all going to be about, like everything else, it was all about story. This is when you get the the move of the building from where we know of Carousel of Progress. That was one of the destinations for it. And they said, no, let's move it and put it across railroad tracks and add these tunnels that we, where we can add these pre-show and post-show elements that just you know give you so much more of a story, both going and coming, to make it you know not just that coaster but that immersive experience. Yeah, and, and it it changed a lot, you know, in terms of what they originally wanted. It was going to be a four-track coaster, then they changed it to two tracks. Uh, we talked about how. One of the problems was the funding of it, right? Obviously, you needed a, a corporate sponsor where a company like RCA comes in, and they had things like the Astuto Computer Review and Allison Computerland, all those kind of things. Working with John Hench, they had these old concepts that never came to be. So when they finally came over and, and worked with Disney to sponsor Space Mountain, some of those old ideas that they had sort of changed a little bit but worked well into their sponsorship of Space Mountain. It sort of helped to complete the story, too. Right. You have Robert Sarnoff, you know, the, the head of RCA at the time, ponying up the money to, to get this attraction built, and then how, how to make it work where the merging of these two, you know, of Disney's imagination and RCA's advancements in entertainment were going to meet. And I think one of the things, too, is not just about how it was built, right? But the the building itself, I mean, sort of the construction of it, if you look back on some of uh, the old construction photos, I'm sure there's some on the Main Street Gazette. If not, you'll be putting some up very, very soon. <laughs> but it, it, you know, how they sort of created this this giant roof with the with the four supports and the outer walls, and then all these, these 72 beams that hold up this 183-foot-high structure that is also sunk into the ground, which is difficult to do in Florida, mm-hmm. 15 feet. I mean, it's a huge building. At 300 feet in diameter, you're talking about an interior volume of 4.5 million cubic feet, more than double the size of Spaceship Earth, and it really takes up a footprint that's about 10 acres. Yeah, and you were talking about Spaceship Earth. That's one of those you know, engineering marvels we talk about when we look at Disney World's engineering marvels, but Space Mountain is in its own right that that marvel of a thing. And we don't get to see it very often. You don't get to appreciate it very often because you see it from the outside and it's pitch black inside. But ride through the people mover it when the lights are on and you start to really understand the scope of what this looks like. Yeah, and, but that's the thing, right? It's the lights on versus lights off. This was the first roller coaster attraction to occur in perpetual darkness. And I think that's what not knowing what's coming is what makes this the e-ticket attraction. Because having ridden it with the with the lights on and gone through on the people with the, with the lights on, it doesn't take away like, oh, first of all, it's a little scary because you're like, my God, they really cramped a lot into this relatively small building. But it's that idea of that sense of being in space that Walt wanted and the things that they did to sort of create that atmosphere in complete darkness. It's like, you know, we talk about the speed of it. It feels like it's going so fast. You feel like you're moving so fast. It's actually not the fastest roller coaster in Magic Kingdom. It tops out around 27 miles per hour or so. But it's that it's that innate sense of darkness and you don't know what's coming. And so the the turns are more jostling. The drops are more terrifying. You don't know when they're going to end. It does. It creates this just a black hole effect of, okay, this is this is not going as well as I want it to. And, you know, we, we've talked about some of the early concepts, right, of what Spaceport was going to be in those very early John Hench drawings and, and the, uh, the the sculptor Mitsu who came up with sort of the stylings of what Spaceport was going to be for Disneyland. There was an idea at one point of having the roller coaster actually come outside of the show building, much like something like Expedition Everest or, or the Matterhorn. But again, technology didn't meet up with imagination, so they weren't able to do it. But I think that's part of what Space Mountain's appeal is, is the fact that you walk up to this show building and have no idea what's going on inside. You have no idea what what sort of attraction is going to take place inside. Definitely, and I think that adds to that, one, the mystique about it, but you know, two – it, it's such a uh, piece of that attraction that you know. And I know we'll talk about later when we talk about refurbs, but they've gone to great lengths to make it darker and darker inside as they've gone along to just add to that heightened sense of of unawareness of what's around you. Yeah, and you were talking before about the idea of 
the space race and, and, and the idea of going to space, when the attraction finally opened after a very, very long construction period, right? It opens in January of 1975. It really was all about embracing this idea of the space race, right? They had a, a band on the TTA walkway. They had Mickey in a sort of very futuristic space suit and they had red, white, and blue fireworks. But more importantly, Ryan, what they had there to open up and to dedicate and to kick this attraction off were those real American astronauts. Yeah, you had Gordon Cooper and James Irwin and Scott Car- Carpenter all there for this attraction. And even for the first several years, Gordon Cooper... Um, was the voice or the person in the, the video, the pre-show video, showing you how safe it was? Um, the dedication plaque, you know, went off of that theme of one giant step, which is Neil Ar- echoes Neil Armstrong's words. It's just an incredible dedication to the space program at that time. Yeah, and for me, you know, when I think about Space Mountain and this idea of being in the dark, I think one of my favorite parts, for a lot of reasons, is the Star Tunnel. And this was very much a, a George McGinnis design, right? It's something that he yeah. wanted to put in there. It actually was meant to be sort it was meant to be something different and they couldn't sort of again figure out the technology because they only had about 4 seconds to put this in there. They wanted to sort of make you feel as though you were spinning and turning over, uh, but they had a very very short period of time to do that. And and if you go back to that interview, George goes into great detail about how this idea came to be and how putting in strobes and colors and lights and music sort of all makes that effect work very, very well. It's a relatively simple effect that works very, very well in a short span of time. Yeah, it definitely gives you that effect of, of getting lost and of you're rotating almost in an orbit of a, of a thing. And I know they were able to finally get a big chunk of it at Disneyland. And I remember that interview that you did with, with George. And I've talked to him a couple of times over the years and it's, yeah, I could listen to him talk forever, but you're, you're right. These Space Mountain ideas that sometimes took a couple of years for us to get caught up to. Yeah, so let's talk about how it's changed over the years. Um, it, you know, because as although the, the track itself has not changed, the uh, the attraction itself from pre-show and post-show and even inside uh, in terms of lighting and music have gone through a number of changes over the years. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you consider the sponsorship, even just the sponsorships from RCA, the entertainment company, to FedEx, the delivery company. You know, there's going to be a change in message there, definitely. Yeah, so let's talk about some of the things that changed from pre-show to to, to post-show area. So let's go. When, when I think of, of pre-show, of Space Mountain, uh, one of the things that really sort of I, I remember a, a lot was what was going on on Space Mountain TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have RCA having all their their screens in there. You have, well, when you're walking, you have Nipper uh, there to greet you, their their mascot. Uh, but all these different ads for all the different things that they were that were out at the time. Yeah, so you know when RCA was sponsoring it, one of the things that sort of was the only hint as to what was going on was actually outside. Remember, they had the mm-hmm. um, the rocket sort of coming down that that spire outside. Yes. That was the only sort of thing that sort of hinted. As to what was going on, and then when that when FedEx took over, uh, it was it, it was still there, but they took the the RCA name off of it. But inside, they had after FedEx took over in '94, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, they started something called Space Mountain TV, and they had a number of what now would look like giant clunky TVs hanging from the ceiling in the queue, and. What they really had was sort of a broadcast from the future, sort of a, a news program from the future. And it was filled with not just news, but a lot of funny products, obviously promoting FedEx's ability to d- deliver anywhere on time, day or night. But they had a lot of cool references in there as well as celebrities. So Charles Fleischer, as you know, he was the voice of Roger Rabbit. He was a used car, not a used car, a used satellite dealer in one commercial. He was Crazy Larry. Mario Lopez from um, oh my god, I, I, the name just escaped me. The um, Saved by the Bell. The Mario bell. Lopez yeah. from Saved by the Bell was in there as well too. Uh, there was also some scenes from the Black Hole and Tron in there as well too. Right, and these were all these the, 
for people who haven't who ever saw that, it's basically to give them a perspective is you know on the Tomorrowland stage now you had that screen and it had all these basically like ads on the screen, but this was video versions of that and it was you know, comedic and a little bit of you know pushing the message of FedEx, but you yeah they gave you these, these, this way to entertain yourself as you were going down these deep dark tunnels. And I also remember too uh, there was an ad for Excess Technology, which was a nod to. Mm-hmm. Uh, alien encounter and you remember the um there was a, a character called ray cathode who was doing like some saturn space show or mars space show it was glenn shaddix who was otho from beetlejuice <laughs> they put whoever they could in there <laughs> but these listen charles fleischer mario lopez and otho from beetlejuice they were big deals in 1994 right we, yeah you know 20 years on you, you feel trying to remember the names but back then that that was a big deal and I, you know, the other thing that, that I always loved, and, and it's still there, even with the, the most recent refurbishment, was as you were walking through the queue, I, I liked the idea of those sort of curved glass, dimensional-looking, almost 3D images of being out in space. You know, I, I think there was something about that very simple queue that even as a kid got you excited and got you sort of at, at the sense that you were really... It was like a flight to the moon that really we're going to be sort of taking off in a rocket ship to space. It felt more like you were already on a space station at that point than you were actually going to a launching port. You had these, you know, had asteroids, you had satellites, you had spacecrafts kind of going by and these, yeah, these convex kind of mirror uh, effect things. And it just, yeah, it just added on to that sense of that heightened sense of, you know, okay, this is this is really it. I'm getting ready to to take that flight to the to the farthest cosmos. So before we talk about the. The, the, really the most recent major update in, in 2009. Let's go not from the pre-show, let's go to the post-show, right? Let's talk about, you know, obviously the attraction is this idea that you have, you know, gone onto this journey into space. But let's sort of talk about what happened after you got off the attraction because it really was almost like another attraction in and of itself. It definitely was. You, I mean, you had RCA's, you know, home of future living um, with all of these technological advancements, whether they had them now or these were things that were going to be coming in the future. And you would go through this house and see all the different pieces of a house in the future. So they use that same speed ramp technology that is there now, that sort of that long black, you know, Goodyear belt that, that sort of helps escort you out of Space Mountain. But the show that was there back in the 70s was very different. And this is where that corporate sponsorship, this is where they got their bang for the dollar because this was going to showcase different types of RCA technology by bringing you sort of scene by scene and room to room into what their vision of the house was going to be, right? So we're talking again, mid to late 70s. Uh, I remember the first room was uh, the nursery and then there was a woman talking on a two-way sort of video screen. And wasn't she – she was doing like a pottery lesson or so she was doing some sort of arts and crafts kind of thing. Right. She's, learning, she's taking a pottery class and talking about like how the handle – her handle is messed up and the, and the teacher is telling her, oh, well, this is what you've done wrong. Um, and there you also have the, pot, the father on the patio having a business meeting on his, you know, on his computer screen. Um, and from there, you're moving into like the, the rumpus room where – one child's doing, you know, the the uh, 3D kind of gaming, and the other one's building a, a model rocket, uh, and it just keeps going through the house. And interesting, now in 2014, you look back. So the first room being the nursery, where they have this clown that has a video camera built into it, so you can watch the baby from other parts of the room. You know, future technology that was more science fact than science fiction. Two way video conferencing is isn't is a you know it's been an everyday occurrence for years. We're talking about that. Selectivision simulator and games and, and sort of assembling things virtually. These are all sort of things that were not just sort of, you know, glimpsing into the future from a, a science fiction point of view, but things that obviously clearly technologies that RCA had their, their finger on the pulse on of things were going to be coming up, you know, in the relatively near future. Right. You knew you were going to have people being able to order. Uh, things on the home shopping network effectively they have that at one point in the kitchen with the mom and the neighbor you have wall-sized television screens for football or for uh watching you know 20 leagues under the sea all these things that they they knew were coming and just you know that hadn't come up to the general public yet but they wanted to get you excited about it right and at the time things like selectivision video discs were like wait a minute i can have these discs and watch everything from 
Elvis to to you know Kurt Russell in Disneyland to to Blondie. Like I can put these discs in and watch these videos or movies anytime I want. That sort of thing didn't exist in, in 1977, 1978. <laughs> no, but the the daughter with the orange hair probably did exist somewhere <laughs> close to that. Um, and, and then they would move you out of the house and you'd go and you'd see actual televisions that were, you know, seven different models of televisions that were for sale now. And they were videotaping guests as they were moving up that speed ramp and giving them the experience of seeing themselves on film effectively. Right, which at the time was very, very, very costly. It was very expensive to do that sort of green screen technology that now, you know, we can do with a webcam at home. But they put a lot of money into that for, for what now we look at as a very, very simple effect – that was a, a big deal for them to do, to, to sort of invest in that, because they wanted you to feel as though you had moved into the future and you were experiencing something that you could not get to do anywhere else. Yeah, and, and, they, and they would tie it together with you know the song, Here's the Future and You, because you were a part of that future. You, they wanted you to be a part of their future, and then you would exit out, and you wouldn't exit out into the arcade like you do now. You would exit out so that you would immediately start talking about all the great things you just saw in addition to the roller coaster you had just been on and how you, know, you wanted to, to be part of that future. So you hit on something that very much resonates with me from a nostalgic point of, point of view. Here's to the future and you. That's the song that's still is stuck in my head, you know, and, and I'll play it, you know, I'll, I'll add this into the show this week for those people who might not remember it, but I think that was one of the hallmarks, too, of early Walt Disney World. I think this is a great example of, you remembered attraction theme songs so well. You and I could very easily belt out, if you had wings, great big beautiful tomorrow, here's to the future and you, a lot of these songs that were written specifically for these attractions. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, Tomorrowland really had like the pulse of music, at least catchy music that you were going to carry with you. And we've carried it with us for, you know, 30, 40 years at this point. Um, so they definitely knew how to get that in you and how to get that earworm hook. Yeah. And, you know, even as time went on and Space Mountain went through some of its refurbishments, that Home of Future Living, they did a really good job of continuing to keep it updated, whether it was with people, whether it was technology. So uh, I remember at one point, Julia Child was now giving mm -hmm. cooking instructions. Uh, they, they updated the movie. So now it was like Saturday Night Fever, the Ozo family friendly, The Godfather, The Ten Commandments. <laughs> uh, and then another song had replaced Here's to the Future and You with uh, Bring the Magic Home with RCA. It was that same type of shift that you had in other attractions where where a company like GE didn't want you to think about the future, it's what you can have right now, right? Not about what you can buy from RCA in the future, like with Carousel of Progress and mm -hmm. as a, like Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow. It's, you know, now is the time, now is the best time. Well, now it's bring the magic home right now with RCA. Definitely. And they did, and with that, you know, nowadays, you, you know, the people mover, you have to look down over the side to kind of get a catch a glimpse of the post show, you know, they did a very smart job of adding some of these up to the upper level. You know, like the rumpers room was on the second floor almost, and you could see it better from the people mover. And so you're getting that that tag there too. And it was just everywhere you went of this is this is where we are today. But this is one of those things too. And I remember Ryan, I could remember it like it was yesterday. As a kid, when I came off of Dream Flight and I looked at my dad, I was like, what what happened? What did they do? It's like going off Journey into Imagination without Figment. You're like, what did they do? <laughs> well, in 1985, when the Home of Future Living was gone, and it was, you know, it was Rika One, it was Dream of a New World. I'm like, Wh where's my home? Where's Julia Child? Where's the video phone? Where's the guy watching the big TV? They took out one of those things that, for us who who went there very early on, was very much an, an integral and important part of the attraction. Like the thrill was over, but the cool technology stuff at the Home of Future Living was kind of what we were looking forward to as an additional payoff at the end. It, it definitely was. And I can't even remember, you know, the first time I went on Space Mountain, I'd been begging and begging and begging to go on it. And I'm on the ride and I'm terrified beyond belief going, what did I do? What did I do? But by the time I got out, I wanted to go again because I just wanted to go see all this stuff that I had just seen for the past two to three minutes. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and now that it's, again, we'll talk more about the refurbishment again too. There are some little hints uh, back to that as well, but I, I remember the home of future living was one of those things that you had almost hoped would stay, right? It would be like a carousel yeah. of progress that would hopefully 
continue to be up, updated with new technology. Obviously, as corporate sponsorships change and, and money goes, and there's a lot of different reasons why it happens, it, it never took place, right? But that was sort of a thing like, well, these are sort of very easy, small vignettes or tableaus that could be updated with what that next technology is that wouldn't necessitate a, a big refurbishment. Like, okay, we need to take down Carousel of Progress for nine months and update every scene. You could update those kind of individually with what was going on now and what might be coming next. Definitely. And you could almost do it on a room by room basis. You know, you could turn out the lights in one room, put up a little half curtain and fix that one space. And then you could move on and you, and you still have the rest of the house to look forward to. And and, it, and you could, you could do very minor updates as you go. And today, you know, with everything changing so quickly, it would have been very simple to kind of just add these pieces in as you went. And as technology changes it from year to year and month to month. Right. But when 2004 comes and FedEx discontinues its sponsorship, you know, the handwriting is on the wall. Right? You're not expecting anything to change in any sort of dramatic way because now there's really is no, that no funding. In 2009, all of a sudden we hear about what is going to be a lengthy renovation project. And I'm going to ask you, honestly, when you first heard about, about that, what were your thoughts? Because sometimes we nostalgics, we get nervous, right? Like, okay, yeah. you're going to mess, you're going to potentially mess with a classic, right? It had changed over in Disneyland, so we start to speculate, right? Are the same kind of things going to be coming? It's going to be new ride vehicles, a new soundtrack. People saying, oh my God, they're going to, they're, there were rumors, I'll never forget, there were rumors like, get ready because they're going to take the roof off Space Mountain because they're going to replace yeah. the track. Yeah, there was, there was talk that they were going to go to one track, not the two-track model they've always had. There was talk that the people mover could was going to be closed and it could be going away too. And there were so many rumors speculating about what had happened at Disneyland was going to happen here that it, – I mean it reached a fever pitch very quickly. And people got nervous. I mean and, – and look, if you thought about it, you know, to replace a track is not something that would happen over a couple of months. It would have required years. They spent uh, supposedly around $12 million on the refurb. Something like that would have been exponentially greater because you're basically installing a completely new ride system. But we were wondering, you know, how is it going to change and what was going to change? And it did, and I think it improved for the better, right? So let's, we'll talk about pre and post show, but let's talk about the attraction itself, right? We, we, we were maybe hoping, wondering, speculating, concerned that the ride vehicles were going to change. They did. We were hoping to get that same type of in-car speaker system that they have out in Disneyland. Uh, they did create new six-person ride vehicles, although I do remember, and I, and I sort of miss uh, being able, sitting sort of in between my dad's legs, you know, very early on. <laughs> With the belt that just kind of hooked on to a yeah, hook on the other. Yeah, just, you know, hold yeah. on tight, kids. Yeah, you'll I'll, be fine. I'll never forget as a kid, uh, God, it was, it was in the late 70s. I'm still the same height that I am now. But sitting there in the front, my dad let me sit in front of him. And at one point, I don't know what I did, and I threw my head back and I hit my dad and I gave him a fat lip. And every picture from our trip uh, that year had my dad with the fat lip. But it's that's a magical moment and memory that I'll take with me forever. Um, but so the ride vehicles changed. They were not able to do that again because it would have necessitated more than just swapping out a vehicle. It would have necessitated changes to the track itself, which they were not – they didn't want to, nor did I think that they need to do. No, absolutely not. You know, and and one of the things you know, they, st they still have that glow in the dark stripe on the side, but now it becomes so dark you don't see the glow in the dark stripes whizzing around through the through the ride now. Um, but they did. They you know, we thought we might get the, those two person you know seats, and which would have required so many changes that um, I think it is still that very slender, very sleek kind of ride vehicle that you think of when you think of a rocket. And I think it's a much smoother ride than it was before, right? I think the updates that they made to the Matterhorn out in Disneyland recently makes it a little bit rougher. I think this is actually a much more fluid, much smoother ride. And it may be my imagination. It may be the new vehicles. It may be other changes that they made. But I also think that really what makes this is something very, very simple. It probably wasn't simple from a technology point of view. But the fact that they made the interior of that building, which has no windows, so you wonder where it's, the light is coming from, they made it so much darker it made for a much better version, much like Disneyland, where you are in pitch black. That's what this Walt Disney World version, that's what the thing that really sort of struck me. Yeah, it's a no-holds-barred dark experience now, and they did it from closing in, you know, part of the 
um, loading area, and I can only assume there's some way they figure out how to dampen some of that light coming in from the people mover tunnels, but they've made it a total in-the-dark experience. Yeah, even in terms of the lighting they use inside in terms mm-hmm. of the, the projections of the stars and the star tunnel, there's not a lot of bleed from those few lighting points that are in there. And I think, too, although we didn't get it built into the ride vehicles themselves, I think the addition of what they call stereophonic sound is sort of all-enveloping soundscape that isn't just on the attraction itself. It really permeates the entire building. That helps set the scene. It really does sort of create a, a, a backdrop for the stories, and there's additional speakers everywhere, and I think it really sort of helps to punctuate some of the different story elements that you go through on the attraction, right? It's, it's you know, it's twists and turns, it's ups and downs, and as you hit those points, it very much is punctuated with the music. Right, they picked, they picked their music cues really well to where they were, where they were going to hit it. It all sounds very, very alien. It doesn't sound like music of this world, so you have that, you know, outer space extraplanetary kind of a feel to it. Um, they were very, very smart with all the choices they made in terms of atmosphere for sound and for sight and all these pieces that you needed to make this that full-on rocket ride experience. And I think, too, if you really pay attention, right, and, and I often ride Space Mountain with my eyes closed, not that you need to, but I really, <laughs> the next time you go, you really need to pay attention to the music because as the ride changes, and you might not realize that the ride changes, but as it does, the music changes as well. It, it mm-hmm. goes from very orchestral to very percussion-y to almost sort of like a future techno dance party thing near the end. And I think that helps to really influence your enjoyment of the ride. It almost is sort of like a three-act play, and you're like, three-act play? Lou, come on, that's a roller coaster in the dark. What are you talking about? But pay, very atten- pay close attention because I think the character of the ride changes and it really is helped more clearly defined by the music. And I think the music, and I really, really like that uh, a lot. It's one of those things where if you take away someone's sight, what they have left is you know a lot of hearing. And so how are you heightening that sense? How are you bringing that to the forefront of what you're doing? Uh, and they found a perfect way to mesh that. Yeah. And I think too, they also help to create a more cohesive story. Right, so as you walk into the queue, they are helping to define exactly what it is that you are doing in terms of entering the spaceport. And there's a lot of cool little nods throughout the attraction and even on the people mover to this being sort of spaceport 75. This is uh, this, you know, references to obviously the attraction opening in 1975. But look for things that show like MK1 Tomorrowland Station, Tomorrowland Station, right? This is a space station that exists in Tomorrowland. There's also ones in in, in Tomorrowland 77, Discovery Landing in Paris, Ashita Base in Tokyo, Hong Kong Spaceport THT. They reference other ones around the world, but they also sort of give you an idea that this is not just a roller coaster in the dark. There's a story that's connected to all of this. Definitely, and, and even beyond like the the board, you know, the departures board, effectively, and spaceport board, you you move in to see the maps, and you see you know different Disney characters, whether it's you know the planet of Ariel or the system of Ariel, and in uh, all the little maps and little details to give you that hint of you know it's all connected somewhere. Yeah, and obviously a lot of the changes that we see in the queue are not just in terms of, of theming and lighting, but they the addition of the interactive queue, right? This is a, a, a trend that we've started to see more and more. Guests no longer want simply a, a passive type of experience. They want to be able to do something, right? They want to play. They want to interact. And now they added this interactive queue with these games that are mounted on the rail, simple controls, right? Simple push-button controls mm-hmm. that you can play cooperatively. That's the other thing, too. Like, it sort of creates a more friendly communal type of environment going on we're not just like you're, you're competing against other people but potentially with your friends or family or the stranger that's standing next to you in line right it's it's almost like what you we see when you know soren brought in the big game vid screens and you had everyone kind of interacting with those pieces same kind of thing here it's a very much a team building kind of experience whether it is your team or if it's the people like you said that you've that you just met in line that you've been in line with for an hour now you guys get to work together to kind of to, to build this this uh space port 
And it, I mean, it's certain, look, it, it absolutely helps to pass the time, right? They're very sort of quick. We all have short attention spans, 140 characters. It's a short attention span type of game, but it definitely helps to pass the line, the time in a line that can certainly, during the busy time of the year, extend, you know, hours. Yeah, cause I, you know, and if you're getting in there in the mornings or you're getting in there at, at really quick times, you're not going to have this experience. But you're, like you said, at summer, at Christmas time, when that line can extend outside and you know straight into Tomorrowland, it gives you something else to look forward to, something else to pass the time while you're waiting and waiting and waiting for your rocket ship to arrive. And I have to tell you, I, I do very much appreciate uh, as an Imagineering fan, right, and and the work that goes into it, even the load area. The load area where they changed sort of that, that domed ceiling, they changed some of they put some special effects in terms of the stars, the color, the light, the, the changes to even the, the gates, they make a big difference, right? It makes a very big difference. When you think about what it looked like beforehand and what it looked like now, they really spared no detail or expense. And I remember talking to Imagineer Alex Wright, who had a lot to do with this, and the importance of some of those changes aesthetically that took place in the load area too. Definitely. And even a nod back to the history, you know, for so long they were the Alpha and Omega tracks and that kind of got, you know, washed away between, you know, in the past 30 years of this attraction and they've brought it back and you have a side that's Alpha side, you have a side that's Omega side and it's that nod back to the history and all the little pieces, you know, the dimming of the lights and just to give you that, that full bodied experience there. And the other thing they added too was not what you see at the beginning, but what you see at the end. They added on-ride photo, on-ride photos, which you know uh, guests love to be able to, you know, not just look at, but take with them. Whether it's from Splash Mountain, Tower of Terror, here on Space Mountain, but but I'll tell you, as somebody who you know, when the attraction went down, it was down for so long. I was like, what are they doing? You know, what kind of changes are they making here? How are they potentially? Are they changing the integrity of the attraction? Is there, what, what is going to be different? But I think that they really preserved what I loved most about Space Mountain, right? That it's in the dark. It's now darker. They, they, they took that element and they made it better. But it still very much has that cool 70s retro feel to it. You know, even with the post-show, which has a lot of cool nods to things like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the dog and some of those scenes from Future Living, it still very much has not a futuristic feel, but almost that, you know, future that never was retro kind of feel. Yeah, you can see it in everything from, like, you know, the designs, whether you're in the queue with those big, square, clunky, like, bulkhead kind of things, to the to even when you're looking at the boxes and the luggage that are in the post show with all the stickers, you know, the travel stickers that are that look very retro in design. You know, that we have the one for Mesa Verde from Horizons. It, it does still have that almost future that never was, you know, Flash Gordon kind of feel to it. Yeah, and it's right. So you sort of make those Horizons reference because it, it very much does have that Horizons connection to it, whether it's, you know, with the, the Mercury Peaks or the Crater Caverns or, or mm-hmm. even the robot. You know, even sort of the robot that's serving drinks reminds me of the butler robot from Horizons 2. Definitely. He has his tray right there. He's, like, he, he's a little bit more put together than maybe the robot from Horizons was. But it does. It has that, you, you have that, you know, cityscape out in front of you, which is very reminiscent at the very end. Uh, it, it does feel like they've, they've wanted to kind of put, put that little nod in there. So, Ryan, before we leave Walt Disney World's Space Mountain, I have to ask you, all in the name of research, have you been out and experienced Disneyland's Space Mountain? I have. I actually, uh, it's been a number of years now, but I, I, it was right after they had done all the, the refurbishments to it. Um, and I can remember that tunnel of, that George McGinnis had wanted to build, and I can, I can remember how disorienting that was and how, much I, how that was a great part of the ride. But to me, they are very much apples and oranges because they are such very different experiences. Um, but what about you? What do you think about Disneyland's? Yeah, and you just you, you took the words out of my mouth. I, I think they are very you know they're 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 married in name and in and in theory and in concept and design, but they are very different attractions. I don't think it, well much like comparing Disney World and Disneyland, they should not be sort of compared and pick one because they're very different experiences. I will tell you, I, the first time I rode Disneyland Space Mountain, it was like I had never been on the attraction on on a Space Mountain attraction before in my life. It was darker, it was louder, the soundtrack was different. Uh, I saw it right when Ghost Galaxy had come in, so they do an overlay there as well. It's very, there's a lot of things I like about the Disneyland Space Mountain, from the queue to the music to some of those things, but it, it is like comparing two very different types of experiences. 
I was That's, happy that they did not make Walt Disney World's version a carbon copy or a clone of the one in Disneyland. No, and this is something that I think you and I have talked about many different times is to give you those unique experiences, even if it is, like you said, married in name, to make them so different that you want to go and try the others. You want to go see what else is out there. Uh, I think that's a very smart move on side of Disney. Yeah, and you know, years ago, uh, the first time I really went to Disneyland um, since I was sort of into all this was was back in 2000 and God, I remember five, six, seven, and I went with a bunch of guys, right? Because that's where guys go now on vacation. We don't go to Myrtle Beach. We don't go to Vegas. We went to we went to Disneyland. It's a man's a, trip. It's fine. Yeah. It, listen, it's a mancation. But I, I did a show and it was it was I think I called it like why every Walt Disney World fan needs to visit Disneyland. And I think we, we really sort of pointed out some really great examples because at the time I think a lot of people said, well I've been to Walt Disney World, Disneyland, I don't need to go we, I almost feel like the need to do it again. And things like Space Mountain and the changes and the updates that continue to go on make me say, you know, we do need to do something like that again. Maybe we need me, you, and a couple other guys need to go out to Disneyland and give more reasons why Walt Disney World fans need to go out and visit Disneyland, as if we don't have enough reasons with Cars Land, Buena Vista Street, and now the Avengers Half Marathon. <laughs> um, but this is a great example of how attractions that you think are similar can still be very, very different. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the park as a whole, I remember you know, my wife at the time, we walk around, she's like, it's Bizarro Disney World. <laughs> she was like, I know where I am, but I don't know where I am at the same time. And, I'm, and it does, it adds that kind of reminiscence. Like, yeah, I can, I can navigate it, but you have totally different experiences. I'm totally up for that trip. Let's go ahead and book it. I, I did get lost. Just so you know, the first time I went to Disneyland, I was by myself at night. My friends hadn't arrived yet. I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. I literally, I was like, what's the dead end in Fantasyland? Where, where, why is, what is, where is, things were just not where they were supposed to be. But I'm going to leave you and the listeners with a question. You can actually give me yours. The listeners can email me or call the voicemail or uh, leave a comment on Facebook or the forums or Twitter, whatever it may be. Ryan Wilson, is Space Mountain your favorite roller coaster in the Magic Kingdom? It is not. Uh, as much as I love it, I have always been that Frontierland, Fort Wilderness kid, so it's always Thunder Mountain, and it'll probably always be Thunder Mountain. I had a feeling you were going to say that. So now I want the listeners to tell me, is Space Mountain your favorite roller coaster in the Magic Kingdom? If not, which one is? And it's cool if you say the Barnstormer, man. Embrace your inner child, because I, I dig it too. Again, leave your answer either on the show notes, visit www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast link, leave it in the comments there. You can also go to facebook.com slash Radio. You can tweet me, I'm at Lou Mangiello. Lots of different ways to connect. Or call the voicemail, 407-900-9391, or click the voicemail box on the right-hand side of the website. Also, as long as you are on the internet, please stop what you're doing, put down your pen and paper, not that anybody uses pen and paper anymore, but go to Main Street Gazette, MainSTGazette.com. Ryan Wilson, I'm your friend, but I'm a fan first, man, because I dig the stuff that you post there from the retro stuff to the current stuff to photos and information that you really can't find elsewhere. And, and I love the way you write you the way you write and your style. And I say it all the time, man. You are a like you have been pounding out content on a daily basis for as long as I can remember, and uh, it's awesome stuff. I just do what I can. Well, it's very cool. Again, Main Street Gazette, and if they wanted to follow you on the Twitter, where would they get you? Main ST Gazette at Twitter, on Instagram. I'm all over there. Nice. Look at you, embracing your little insta inst Instagramming. So we'll have to Instagram our little hearts out when we go to Disneyland, <laughs> and if you think Space Mountain's good there, my God, wait till you try a cozy cone. Oh, I've been waiting for a cozy cone. <laughs> waiting for a cozy cone. Now they have it for breakfast. That's just trouble waiting to happen. Yeah, we could we could do that. We could make it. We could make it. Now I'm seriously thinking <laughs> we could make a Disneyland trip happen. Yeah, I'm trying to sit here and think. I, I'm sure. Thank God, Aileen's Aileen's not here right now. Yeah, Daddy has to go to work at Disneyland. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week. I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history, see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, or maybe even what you hear, for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. 
So last week was all about the Oscars, and congratulations to Frozen and Adele Dazim for their win on Oscar night. And I talked a lot about Disney's history with the Oscars on previous shows and how Walt Disney holds the record for the most individual Academy Awards won and the most Academy Award nominations, including special and technical awards. And your question last week was simply to tell me, what did Walt win his first Oscar for? Again, hundreds of you entered, all of you pretty much got this one right, and that Walt's first Oscar was the first ever Academy Award for animated short subjects, his silly symphony, Flowers and Trees. And actually in that same Academy Award ceremony back in 1932, he was also given an honorary award which was presented to him for the creation of Mickey Mouse. So again, I took all of the correct entries, randomly selected one, and you are playing for a copy of all six of my virtual audio walking tours of Walt Disney World, as well as a copy of my new book, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World, which you can find over at Disney102.com. And last week's winner is... Joellen Poncheri. So Joellen, congratulations. I'm going to send you an email with your download codes for the audio guides and the books. If you played last week and didn't win, don't worry, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So as long as we're talking about Space Mountain, I figured I'd ask a trivia question about it as well. And when Space Mountain first opened officially in 1975, it joined the one other attraction in Walt Disney World as the only two Disney theme park attractions to debut at Walt Disney World in Florida, as opposed to starting in Disneyland and then coming over to Walt Disney World. So just tell me, what was that other attraction? What was the very first attraction to debut at Walt Disney World instead of Disneyland? You have until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday, March 16th, to email your answer to contest at wdwradio.com. Again, you're playing for all the audio tours and another copy of my new book, 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. Don't forget that in addition to the podcast, which you can subscribe to over on iTunes, visit the website at www.radio.com. Lots going on there, including new videos, multiple daily blog posts, our free email newsletter, and the free WDW Radio app, as well as our fun, family-friendly discussion forums and lots more. Be sure and check out the blog to see how you can be involved in some of the fun on things like Self-Shot Tuesdays, Throwback Thursdays, and lots of chances to win mystery tickets just by reading the blog. You know, I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have a question you want answered on the show, you can email me at lou at www.radio.com. If you want to be heard on the air, you can call the voicemail with a hello from the parks, a question, a comment, whatever it may be, 407-900-9391. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Lou Mangello and Facebook.com slash WDWRadio. My personal profile, you can follow me there as well. It's obviously Facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello. And like I always say, nothing beats a handshake and a hug, so there's lots of events coming up, including our next Meet of the Month in Walt Disney World. It's going to be breakfast and a Muppet movie as we go to see Muppets Most Wanted after breakfast at Earl's Sandwich. That's going to be Saturday, March 22nd in April, tentatively scheduled for Saturday, April 12th. Also, I want to announce our next On the Road event. It's going to be Saturday, April 5th, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and other events coming up both in Walt Disney World and around the country, including our cruise on the Disney Dream this summer. To learn more about any of these events, visit the events page over at wdwradio.com. I'll also be speaking at a number of conferences and schools around the country later on this year, so visit my events page over at lumangelo.com. I'll post some other meetup information there as well. Big thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider because it's who I use. So whether you're coming out to Disney World, land, or anywhere around the country, Becky and her team can help you get the best possible prices, all available discounts at no additional cost to you. Check them out over at mousefantravel.com. And if you want some Disney magic delivered right to your door, visit celebrationspress.com. You can subscribe and order back issues of Celebrations Magazine. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tweet out that you're listening. Share links or come by and comment over on Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram. And please come by, rate and review the show over on iTunes. It's very, very helpful and very much appreciated. 
And finally, and most importantly, I want to give you my sincerest thanks once again for allowing me to share my passion for Disney through the show and the videos and so many other ways with you. And that's why I consider you all my friends. And I appreciate your help and your support and the friendship that you give me by taking the time out to listen to the show. And I want you to do what you love every day too, right? So don't sit back and wait for opportunities to hopefully come to you. Get up, get out and go make them happen and have faith and always keep moving forward. Do what you love every single day. And I hope you guys have a great, great week. So until next time, see ya. Yeah!